Chapter Thirty Four of Cordelia the Magnificent. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by John Brandon. Cordelia the Magnificent by Leroy Scott. Chapter Thirty Four. Addenda. What happens to be told of this history are merely those disconnected odds and ends which in most histories appear at the end of the volume under the heading addenda. The following addenda are dated approximately one year later than the afternoon when Cordelia sobbed her ecstatic incoherences upon the coestatic shoulder of Mitchell. Mitchell, or more correctly, one should say Harrison. No, he might as well remain Mitchell. Through these few remaining lines, Mitchell was entirely within the facts when he remarked that the story he revealed might prove rather interesting to the newspapers. It did so prove. Rather, what more does a newspaper ask for in a single story than these items? Namely, the most marriageable bachelor in town, having his second big marriage attempt within six months broken off and broken off with attending scandalous incidents. A rich and well-known young society leader, posing as a spinster and about to become the bride of the foregoing gentleman, revealed as having been married these past six years, and being the mother of the child, she had passed off as an adopted French war orphan. The husband to this splendid lady, the owner of a garage, quite willing to remain dead as the lady wished him, because the last thing the garage man wished for on earth was to have the splendid lady as a wife, a former social favorite, recently jilted under remembered circumstances, and since then living under a very dark cloud, entirely cleared of all blame by the sworn confession of the first lady, and mixed in with the foregoing people and having his hand in their affairs, a very prominent attorney, accused of blackmail and various and sundry other malpractices. To repeat having all these, what more can a newspaper wish for in a single story? They had quite enough, and the papers made the most of this much for many days. Certainly Gladys thought it was enough, and so did Jerry Plimpton. There was one inaccuracy in the stories of the first few days. This related to Billy Grayson running a garage. This point was put in by Mitchell in his efforts to make Gladys's pride wince just a little more. There was a garage, to be sure, but that was a minor item. It presently developed that Billy Grayson was a part owner and factory manager of a small but growing concern, manufacturing automobile parts a concern with several promising patents of his own. In fact, the concern for which Mitchell was the Eastern and promotion manager. Mr. Franklin, as Mitchell predicted, is not a happy gentleman these days. Mr. Kedmore, his partner, at once decided it would be wiser to dissolve their partnership. Proceedings looking toward Franklin's disbarment are now pending before the Bar Association and criminal suits on several courts are being pressed against him in the courts. He may escape them all, for he's a man of shrewd wits, 
but the dizzy place he once looked up to as his future estate will be the property of some other gentleman. The day after the scene in Mitchell's office, Jerry Plimpton started on a trip around the world. He is still on that trip. So far as rumor knows, he has as yet announced no third candidate for the houses and the social honors left empty by the death of his distinguished mother. Gladys is in California, living pleasantly at Santa Barbara, the while her suit for divorce progresses through the courts. She charges mental cruelty, which, whatever the phrase may mean, is adequate grounds in California. Perhaps the phrase means a psychic headache, which is perhaps what Gladys has. Anyhow, a divorce is quite as easy to get in California as a headache powder, the former merely requiring a little longer for the prescription to be compounded. During Gladys's few months of social brilliance, culminating in her engagement to Jerry Plimpton, Kyle Brandon often spoke to her with eloquent enthusiasm of what a hit, a handsome, popular, young social woman, such as she was, would make if she would only go into pictures under his direction. Now, despite her living right next door to his studios, so to speak, he has not again broached the brilliant project to her. Notwithstanding Mitchell's declaring to Gladys that any action for divorce she started would be fought by Grayson, her suit is not being contested. This is due to one of the tangles that human affection sometimes involves humans in. Esther may not be sure that she loves Grayson, and Grayson may not be sure that he loves Esther, but Esther loves Francois and is determined to keep him, and Grayson loves Francois and is determined to keep him, and Francois loves them both and is determined to keep them both. And so, as the only compromise by which this difficulty can be arbitrated to suit all these unchangeable determinations, Esther and Grayson are going to be married as soon as Gladys gets her decree, and all three are going to keep each other. They're going to live in Cleveland. But this necessary loss of Francois to Lily does not mean that Lily's bantam-like strutting mothership will abruptly cease to function. Its direction will be changed, has already been changed. That is all. Cordelia still has a job, rather a new job. It is over this new job that Lily is so busy and bossy and strutty. This job is three weeks old and is of the feminine gender. The parents have not yet decided upon a name. Both parents have decided most enthusiastically, that the daughter is magnificent, simply magnificent. Down in her heart, however, where her stoutest resolutions are made, Cordelia has secretly decided that her daughter's magnificence is not to be trained toward a social career. And that, as Mr. Franklin once remarked, that, I believe, is all. The End End of chapter 34 End of Cordelia the Magnificent by Leroy Scott